Good morning and welcome to Genesis. Um, <clears throat> my name is Zach McGoy. I uh, attend here. I am a member here with my wife. Um, We're uh, blessed to be a part of this faith family, family and excited to be a part of y'all. Um, if you're new here, um, we have been continuing through the book of John. The goal is, is for us to, uh, to walk all the way through the entire book of John. So we're kind of picking up today. I'm going to give us a little bit of a brief recap. Um, the past few weeks, few months, really, we have been in this section where Jesus is at the... Um, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Jesus is um, all the way back, if we were to look into uh, John 7, we see that this big event for the Jewish people are going on, is going on, and the, the people are going to it. His brothers kind of ask him to come, and they, they, they make this statement that, hey, you should, you should come because if you are who you say you are, right, um, you shouldn't be doing the stuff in the dark. You shouldn't be doing the miracles in the dark. You should be uh, in front of the people. But John, helpfully, the author of this book, tells us that not even his brothers believed in him, right? So it wasn't their, their motives were kind of sus right there. And so Jesus recognized that and he didn't go. So he didn't follow them. He waited until they had left and then he went. Right? He kind of he stealthed into this meeting, this festival. And then we're told kind of as the festival is going on, um, Jesus walks up, he moves up to the front, and he begins to teach. Um, and he, he says all these things. That, and, and what we're told in Scripture is, is as he is teaching, um, the people are hearing him teach. And they're noticing a difference in how he teaches and who he is and the way that he carries himself that is different than the religious leaders of the time, how they taught, what they believed, who they were. And so kind of the, the public opinion starts to change. And in this crowd, in this group, people start to ask the question, can this be the Christ? I've never heard someone speak with this authority. I've never heard someone speak like this, carry themselves in such a manner. Can this man be the Christ? Well, obviously, the, the Pharisees, the, the leaders, the religious leaders at the time did not like the threat to their authority. And so they convinced they have the temple guard go to arrest Jesus. And what we're told is, is that because it is not his time, they don't lay a finger on him. That God is in such control that even though the world may want to accomplish their goals, they cannot accomplish it apart from the work of God. And so Jesus continues to preach, and he makes these statements. He says, um, if you are thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, um, let him come to me and drink. He, he continues to preach. He, he says, I am the light of the world. That whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And this is uh, John 8, 12. Will not walk in darkness. Will have the light of life. This continues to frustrate the religious leaders. 
And so now, because their original plan of having him arrested fell through, they start to um, debate with him, discuss with him. Who, who are you saying that you are? What do you mean that no one will walk in the darkness? You're bearing witness about yourself, and it is not true. And they kind of go back and forth, back and forth. Um, they claim the genealogy of Abraham. Jesus makes the statement that... Um, they are slaves. And this really bristles them. It causes them to bristle. And, and they're, they're, they say, we're of the genealogy of Abraham. We're not enslaved to anyone. And Jesus, again, he's speaking of a spiritual slavery. He's saying that if you sin, you are a slave to sin. He's not necessarily talking about uh, a physical, worldly occupation of slavery, He's talking about the spiritual sense. And so they comment and they say, we're of the family of Abraham. We're not a slave to anyone. They hold this genealogy um, paramount. It is a foundational pillar of who they are and who they believe that they are, that they are descendants of Abraham, the one that God called out and God made a kingdom, made a nation, made a people for himself that they are a bloodline of this man, and they can trace themselves back to that. But as they're, they're saying this, Jesus responds with, truly, truly, and this is verse, if you're in your Bibles, this is verse, or chapter 8, verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You speak, and then he goes on, he says that you speak of uh, the Father, that you are, uh, that you belong to the Father, but your genealogy is somewhere else. You can trace your genealogy back to Satan, which is tough words, right? Jesus' argument here and his claim here is if they truly were um, of the genealogy, of the descendants of Abraham, they would be doing as Abraham did. They would be doing the works that Abraham done, has done. They would have faith. They could recognize who he is, and they would be following him. But in actuality, their genealogy is not there. Their physical genealogy is, but their spiritual spirituality is not because they do not recognize Jesus. And he says that you, your true father is Satan. That you do not believe me, that you do not recognize me, and you do not follow me because you are not truly of the house of Abraham. And so all that, it's kind of a pretext for where we are this morning. The, the previous section ends with Jesus stating that. He says in verse 47, whoever is of God, hears the words of God, the reasons why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So briefly, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to continue into the section for today. Lord, I come to you, and I thank you for all that you do for us. I thank you for um, your insight. I thank you for giving us the word of God, for giving us your word so that we can better know you and understand you. I thank you that as we dig into these claims of who you are, Lord, that you leave no doubt of what you say. Father, I pray that as, as I speak this morning, as I, I deliver your word, Lord, that 
you will help me, that you will guide me, that you will help keep my thoughts clear, that you'll help me to not stumble over my words and speak clearly as well. And I pray for the hearts that you have gathered here today, that you are opening them and and, and preparing them for your message. I pray this in your name. Amen. So Jesus makes this statement. If you truly were of Abraham, then you would recognize me for who I am. You would not be seeking to kill me. Again, Jesus has set up this family that there are two families essentially on this earth, right? We can, we can look and we can say, well, hey, you know, my, my father, was his name was Brian, right? And his father before him was CB. And we could trace that and we could say, okay, well, now we each have a different dad, right? My dad was not your dad, right? But Jesus essentially creates and says, creates with his words and says that there are actually two families. There's two genealogies here. There are those that follow God and there's a tho- there are those that do not. And when the Jewish people hear this, and when I say, when I say Jewish people, I don't mean all Jewish people. Typically in the, the scriptures, that this, what we're seeing is, is when they say Jews, they're speaking of the religious leaders here, the ones that are... Uh, Causing the antagonist, the um, that are being the antagonists here to Jesus. When they hear this again, they bristle because for them, for anybody to doubt their heritage, for anybody to doubt um, where they trace their their lineage of, is a sin. It's evil. It's wicked. They held this with a lot of pride. So. Jesus continues, and we're told and we see that they respond to this accusation that Jesus has given them, that they are not truly of the house of Abraham. And as we are seeing this, one thing I want to make clear, and I'm going to kind of break it apart as we go, is that as Jesus has been teaching and as John has been writing this gospel for for us, Today, for us to see this, John has been prepping and letting us understand and letting us know that Jesus wasn't just some man. That Jesus was who he claims to be, and that is God. And as we're going to see today, Jesus leaves no doubt that this is what he believed he was, to be God. So let's, let's look at this. So... Verses 48 and 49, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. See, Jesus' previous comments about um, the genealogy of Abraham and, and of the Jews is causing them to lean towards the Samaritan insult. If, if you have any church background at all, you know how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. To them, they were, they were as bad as Gentiles, right? They were not of the true family of God. Essentially, Samaria was a split, Samaria was a split off from the Jewish people 
And for the, and in their mind, they questioned that the Jews were the true children of Abraham. They would argue that they were. So for Jesus to make these statements regarding the genealogy, it causes them to, to lean into this Samaritan insult, right? Jesus has been setting this up, and he has been making his point um, throughout these cha- this chapter, throughout these chapters, and we're at this point where the, the, the Jews do not have a way to come conflict it, to, to fight with it anymore, so to argue against it. So what do they do? They start insulting him, right? And if you've ever been in a Facebook debate, you know that that's, that's the way to go, right? If you cannot, if you, you're stuck and you can't argue your point anymore, we just go to insults, right? right? If you've ever been in, in the uh, schoolyard, that's where it is. You lean into insults, and that's what the Jews are doing here. They call him a a Samaritan. But what's interesting here is Jesus, he he doesn't even argue that. We know that he's not a Samaritan. We know that he was born just down the road from them. But he doesn't respond to being called a Samaritan. What's even more interesting about that is that later... As we read through the scriptures, we're going to see that uh, Jesus gives us one of the, uh, one of the uh, most popular parables of the Good Samaritan. We see that Jesus has visited Samaria. We see that with a woman at the well. That Jesus didn't just love his people, but he loved the world. So Jesus doesn't even respond to that. You know, and, and what's really amazing here is Jesus is able to just let that go, right? How often do I wish that I could just let things go? That when someone um, insults me, I could just wave my hand and just act like it didn't happen, right? But more often than not, I I can leave the argument thinking, man, I should have said this, or man, I should have said that, or... Man, if I would have said this, this would have have got him. But Jesus doesn't even play into this. He responds with, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. You know, Jesus' claims here, Jesus is claiming that God is seeking to glorify him. He says, I do not have a a, a demon, but I glorify my father. Look at verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus was confident in who he said he was. He was confident in the fact that he didn't have to fight for his own glory that he didn't have to seek it, that there was one, his father, God, who would seek it for him. You know, and and if we think about that, glory in the Bible is is interesting because what we're told in Scripture is, is that glory belongs to God alone. Glory belongs to the Father alone. In Isaiah 48, 11, God's speaking, it says, my glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. God alone deserves to receive the glory. 
In fact, as God works and God moves, God does all things for the glory of his name. When we're looking at ourselves in our lives, the reason that it is wrong for us to live in such a way as to seek our own glory is because we are not God. God, uh, Glory does not belong to us. Glory belongs to God alone. The reason it would be wrong for God to give glory to another is because he alone is God. But what we're told here is, is that the glory, that God will glorify Christ. In fact, John, the author of this, uh, this gospel, later says um, in John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So God extends glory to Jesus. God seeks Jesus' glory because Jesus is God. Let's continue. Another claim that Jesus makes that can be tied directly to his deity is that he claims to have power over death. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus makes this promise here. That those that keeps his word, that those that abide in his word and follow him will not taste death. When we see the words truly, truly, what's being said is, is this is a fundamental fact. When Jesus delivers those, truly, truly, I say to you, he, he is delivering something with absolute certainty. Now think about how profound of a statement that is. That those that follow him will never taste death. Well, the Jews are amazed by that statement as well, and so they rebut it. Their argument to it is, found in verse 52 and 53. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? You know, Sitting back and looking at it, their argument makes sense, right? Here is this man saying that if you follow him, if you believe him, if you abide in him, you will not taste death. But as they look back, they say Abraham. Abraham, who is known to them as the father of their faith, right? Father Abraham. Right? This is who they were getting all bristled about when Jesus was commenting that they are not of his line, that they're not following Abraham. To them, he is the epitome of faith. He is the epitome of someone who follows God and follows God's word. 
You know, and as they ask it, it's kind of funny. We get some more of that, that John, that irony that John likes to sprinkle through his book. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Well, us looking at it, we say, yeah, duh, he is, right? But the way they phrase that is they expect him to say no. It's rhetorical. They know the answer is he is not greater than Abraham. And if Abraham died, who is this man who says that he can beat death? They list the prophets. Moses gave them the law. Moses met with God, and as Scripture tells us, as a man meets with his friend. Moses and God, as I, as I see in Exodus, I'm always amazed that the special relationship that Moses and God had. But as they see this, he says, you know, Moses died. Moses gave him the law, and Moses died. So what is Jesus claiming here? It's funny, um, you know, because of the season of life that we're in right now, uh, we get to listen to um, all the kids' songs, right, all the time. And and my amazing wife, she has found these people that that I had no idea existed, but they're called Slugs and Bugs is the name of their band. And their songs are great. I enjoy their songs. But, you know, there's this one song that they're writing, and, and... it kind of gives you, it's not just a song, but it kind of gives you a little bit of a header before it. Essentially, these, these slugs and bugs write these songs, right? And they're writing songs to the glory of God. And they're writing this song about the fruit of the Spirit. Well, they get a delivery, and it is a robot. And it's a robot that is programmed to help them with their songs. And as they are telling the robot what they are going to be singing about, The robot responds with, spirits can't have fruit. Only plants can have fruit. Right? I mean, he's right. And they kind of explain to him that it's a metaphor. And as they get through the song, the robot kind of starts to understand what they're saying. But then then he brings up a tomato. A tomato can't be a fruit and not a fruit at the same time. And their response to him is, is you got, you're going to have to figure this out. You're going to have to see this because in our world and in our belief, what we see is a lot of that, right? How can you be dead and alive at the same time? How can the already be here and the not yet? How can God, Jesus be both man and God? How can the Trinity be three and one? And Jesus here is claiming, even though these people that are there, these Jews, are saying everybody that they've known has died, the the pillars of their faith has died. How can he promise that those that believe in him and keep his word will not experience death? Well, again, they're jumping to the literal, and they're believing and they're listening to the physical death. And Jesus is speaking of experiencing spiritual death. Jesus is in no way is offering a way to bypass physical death. Jesus never promises those who keep his word that they will not physically die. In fact, Jesus predicts his own death. For the followers of Christ, but for the followers of Christ, 
they will not experience spiritual death. See, on his deathbed, D.L. Moody, um, the great evangelist, exclaimed, Earth is receding and heaven is approaching. This is my crowning day. See, Jesus promises those that keep his word, abide in his word, that they will not pass from death to death, but they will pass from life to life. In contrast to that, for those that do not follow Christ, for those that do not know Christ, they are passing from death to death. If you are here today and your hope is in Christ, you do not have to fear death. This place where we're at on this earth is just temporary. But God is forever. Do we really believe that though? Do we truly believe that we won't die? When the world looks at us and sees our claims of life, that we have the true life, that we will live forever, that we will inherit eternal life, that this life on this earth is just temporary, that to live is Christ or is to die, and to die is gain. When we say this and the world looks at us, do they see that? Do they see people who are not afraid of death? I don't know. That's a question that I have to wrestle with. That's a question that I wrestle with daily. Do I care? Do I truly believe in eternal life? Do I truly believe that there's something better than this world? But the fact of the matter is, when it comes to life and death, only God has power over death. For Jesus to make this claim is for him to lump himself in with the divine. Jesus is claiming to possess that power, the power over sin and the power over death. He's, he's claiming to possess the power to give eternal life. And get this, these people that are mocking him, these people that are attempting to kill him, He's inviting them. He's inviting these children of the devil to come to him in faith so that they too might have eternal life. Let's continue. Let's look at verses 54 and 56. Jesus also claims to be the promised Messiah. 54 and 55, Jesus answered them, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I know him and I keep his word. Jesus argues that he has an intimate knowledge of the Father. 
there's a difference there, and our English can, can struggle in it. When we see no, I have known him, I, you say you have known him, and I know him, we would say, well, those are the same word. But truth be told, they're different. In this scripture, what Jesus is saying is that these people who claim to know God, to know about God, but he knows God intimately. Right? I can know a lot about a person. I can follow a person on, on social media and learn a lot about them, but that does not equate to me having a relationship with them, to me knowing them. And Jesus is trying to talk to these people. He's trying to dig them out of their pride and their arrogance and say that you may know about God, but your life is showing that you truly don't know him. John, again, writing later in, the, in his epistles, 1 John chapter 5, 2 through 3, he says this, But this, by this we know that we are children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Jesus' argument is, is that not only does he know about God, but he knows God intimately, and the proof of that is that he keeps his commandments. The way that we can know if we know God is by our obedience to him. Jesus claims, makes another claim here. He claims that Abraham looked at the coming, his coming and rejoiced. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And was glad. Here we go. Jesus is going back to Abraham. He's bringing Abraham back into this, discour this discourse. He is making the statement that Abraham longed for his coming. Abraham looked forward to the coming of the promised one. That would bring salvation to his people, to the world. Jesus is that promised one. Jesus does not say Abraham looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. He says Abraham looked forward to my coming, to my day. Now this gets a little bit tricky. Is he saying that Abraham physically saw him, right? That Abraham is looking down from heaven at his day and he is physically seeing it and he is physically rejoicing right then. Is he saying that Abraham was given a vision of his coming, and he saw Jesus in the way that Jesus actually looks and got to see his day. Or do we know that Abraham had knowledge of him? Well, we know that way back in Genesis that Jesus was predicted that he is the serpent crusher, that he is the one that would come to bring salvation to the world. He is the one that would set the world right. We know that when Abraham was told to go and sacrifice Isaac, and as Abraham is walking up um, on the mountain and Isaac makes the, the statement Lord, we don't, or, or, you know, Father, we don't have a, a sacrifice. And Abraham replies, God will provide a lamb, which ends up being a ram. 
There's some thought that Abraham there was foreseeing and foreknowing the coming of the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for his people. Regardless of this, Abraham had faith and he was saved by his faith that God would bring about salvation and would bless the nations of the world through his line. See, Jesus is the one that was promised. And as the Jews are asking him these questions like, are you greater than Abraham? The answer is yes. Abraham looked at my coming and rejoiced at that. And these people, if they were truly children of Abraham, if they were truly um, followers of God and had God as their father, they would notice this and they would be rejoicing at Jesus' coming too and not seeking to kill him. Finally, we get to this um, mic drop moment. Jesus has been hinting at, he's been laying out evidence for who he is, right? They, they are misunderstanding it. We see this happen a lot where Jesus is speaking and the people do not understand what he's saying or they take him literally when he's speaking in a spiritual sense. But as if there was any doubt left over at all, Jesus says this. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And this is a response to the Jews. The Jews are asking him, how can you claim that Abraham saw you? You're not even 50 years old. How can you have seen Abraham? Abraham died 2,000 years ago. How is that even possible? Jesus' answer speaks more than it first appears to. They ask him, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if we were going to make the statement that, if Jesus was trying to make the statement that he was alive before Abraham was, you know, the correct way would have been to say, before Abraham was, I was. I was there before Abraham was there. But what Jesus chooses to do here is he inserts I am. You know, Jesus made a lot of I am claims um, up to this point of the gospel. I am living water. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. And by the end of the gospel, John, there'll be a total of seven I am statements. And all these claims that Jesus is making, he is claiming to be able to do and accomplish things that only God could do and accomplish. But here in verse 58, Jesus isn't just claiming to be able to do things that only God can do. He is claiming to be God. He is claiming in himself the divine conventional nature of God. He leaves absolutely no doubt to his deity. If we were to look back at Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus is taking the name of Yahweh on himself. He is claiming that he is God. You know, this is the same God. He is claiming to be the same God that the Jews are saying is their father. He's claiming to be the same God that existed before Abraham's birth. He's claiming to be the same God that called Abraham out. He's claiming to be the same God that called Moses. He's claiming to be the same God that extended the Ten Commandments to the Jewish people. He's the same God who split the Red Sea. This is what Jesus is claiming to be. This means that the great I Am has come and dwelt among men in order to redeem sinners through his death on the cross. That God himself came and provided the substitute, provided the sacrifice so that those who are separated from God may be able to be in relationship, may be able to not just know about God, but to know God, to be known by God. And, and the Jews rightly understand what he is saying, right? Throughout scripture, throughout this, this uh, John, we've seen them misunderstanding, right? Taking them literally and not understanding what he's saying. Here we get that we see that they fully understood the claim that he was making. Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. That was the due justice for blasphemy. For someone who claimed to be God was to be stoned to death. And so that's what they move into. This pushed them over to the boiling point. There was no other explanation for it anymore. This man who has been speaking to them, who has been challenging them, is claiming to be the God of the universe. And what's even more amazing here, you know, if, if Hollywood was directing this, right, if Michael Bay was directing this, there was suddenly an explosion in the back of the crowd and Jesus just was able to disappear because everybody's eyes were off of him. But that's not what we're told in Scripture. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The people were enraged and seeking to murder him, but it was not his time. Nothing could come against Jesus until it was his time. Jesus had the utmost faith in his God, in his Father. He had the utmost faith to be able to trust his life to his Father. They could not touch him because his time was not yet come. So what do we do with this? What? I'm going to end with this quote by C.S. Lewis, and it's going to be a quote that most of you have probably heard and know. It's from Mere Christianity. And C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he, he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something else. 
You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at your feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So this morning, as we are here, where are you? Have you heard about Jesus? Do you know about Jesus in the sense that you've, you've learned about him? That his teaching seems good, right? That it seems like he was a peaceful guy. That he's Gandhi, just on another side of the world. Or do you believe that he is the God of all creation? Do you trust him as that? Do you lay your life down at his feet, believing that he will grant eternal life? This is the question that we have to ask ourselves. This is at the end of the day, we have to know who he truly was. And he leaves us no doubt that he was claiming to be God. So I'm going to pray for us this morning. And as I pray, I want us, if there's any doubt in our minds on, on this question, I want us to seek and pray and ask for revelation to be given to us, for us to see, for our eyes to be opened to see him. And more than just our eyes to be opened to see who he is, but our hearts to be softened to follow him. Not only do we need the scales removed from our eyes so that we can rightly see Jesus for who he is, we need our hearts of stone removed so that we can get ourselves out of our way and follow this man, this God.